Hello, everyone, wherever you are. I'm happy to be here once again, welcoming you to another Climate Talk by Porto Protocol. Thank you, Dom, Melissa, and Stephen, as well as all of you behind the screen for being here today. Before digging into our conversation, I want to introduce to you and invite you to join the Porto Protocol. We are the Wines Industries Climate Action Network. We work to be a catalyst of change by sharing practical knowledge and best practices across the wine value chain. And by doing so, we are planting seeds and opening avenues for collaborations amongst our worldwide network. We believe in action rather than perfection and that there is no competition when it comes to tackling climate change. That by sharing solutions, lessons and challenges, we can tackle this emergency together more promptly and efficiently. This is in fact what we'll be doing here today for the next hour or so. We have more than 200 members as part of this community of every size, every profile, every region and spread across the wine valley chain. At this point in time, we act as an open platform and we do not ask for a membership fee, but rather that you share knowledge and engage collaboratively. We are a click away and we would love to meet you. Now, there is something that I want to share with you before moving on to this climate talk. We, invite, we want to invite you to join us at the London Wine Fair, where we'll be present in a variety of ways. We'll have a stand, we'll have a climate talk called The Bottle of the Future is Reusable. We'll have a tasting with wine writer Jane Parkinson, where, for example, we'll have a wine from the Wine Society. And most importantly, together with the organization with the event with London, London Wine Fair and our member from the UK, Sustainable Wine Solutions, we'll be collecting the bottles from the event. What we'll do with these bottles is we'll categorize all waste bottles collected according to bottle types, labels, and country. We will be producing uh, and uh, Sustainable Wine Solutions will be leading this initiative, a post-event report, which will be the most comprehensive research into wine bottle reuse to date. We will be publishing it based on these results and therefore catalyzing reusable bottle schemes by showing the number of bottles types in use, how many were actually reusable, and if they were not reusable, identify why. So stay tuned to this important and pioneering initiative. Now, digging into our climate talk of today, these are one of the ways we have of achieving this mission of ours. The particular edition, Sustainability and Profitability, is the first of a series of four that will be conducted on this topic. So why are we talking about sustainability and profitability? As an organization, we focus mainly on bringing climate action to life. But we never lose hindsight that climate action falls under a wider umbrella, that of sustainability. And that sustainability goes way beyond our impact on the planet. It is also about our impact on the people, on our employees, our community, our supply chain, and our ability to sustain our business, as the name sustainability says, to make it prevail over time. And we are asked so many times by businesses we work with, where should they start on their climate strategy, on their sustainability strategy? And we also hear more often than not that sustainability costs money, that its benefits are intangible, that cannot go into a spreadsheet, that they are a cost rather than an investment. Also on the social front, winemaking is labor intensive as well as seasonal. 
And again, we must not forget that temporary work, temporary work does not mean, and it's different from precarious work. And so under this umbrella, we cannot say that an organic wine is sustainable if it doesn't take care of its people, or that a fair trade wine is sustainable if it does not work along with nature. So let's start introducing our guests for today's climate talk. So I'll start with Dom. Dom is joining us from the UK. He's the Director of Sustainability and Social Impact at the Wine Society. And I'm going to ask Dom just briefly to introduce uh, later on uh, the Wine Society because it's so unique uh, as a company, as a business that we'll, I'll ask Dom, Dom to introduce it properly. And Dom is, has a long track uh, record in working with sustainability. Uh, and one of the things that I think Dom will bring to this conversation is his experience with many, many other industries besides the wine industry. And I think it will be interesting to learn his fresh view as he came into wine and bringing experience from other industries that I think that will be really insightful because uh, that will be new to us. Uh, and then we have Melissa. Melissa is joining us from New York in the US. Melissa is actually, I learned today, Melissa, that you're a lawyer. So I was quite surprised. Um, Melissa is a master of wine and she's the founder and CEO of Communal Brands, an importer and wholesaler for New York. She started the company in, in 2009 and we learned about how she works with her suppliers because she has sustainability at the core of her business. So we learn how how does she combine sustainability and profitability for, um, for, for today's talk. And then we have Stephen. Now, the most important role of Stephen is being the regional representative of the Porto Protocol in Canada. And we know we have quite a few people uh, tuning in from Canada. So please feel free to talk to Stephen to learn about, about more about the Porto Protocol. But no, in fact, Stephen is here because he has been a longtime environmentalist and he's been combining for more than 20 years his love for the environment with his love for wine. He had uh, his own importer for many, many years. He was uh, a, a really important, he is still an important voice of wine in, in Ontario, where he used to supply most of the restaurants locally with his company, Leaford and Wine and Spirits. And just before COVID, uh, he had the most beautiful project called uh, Campbell Kind Wines, where he combined amazing wines. And this is really important for our conversation today because we must talk about sustainable wines, but most of all, delicious and wines that everyone wants to drink with wines that were produced sustainably and with uh, carbon neutral certification. And so we learn more about this. So without further ado, I want to start this conversation by asking each of you, and I'll start with Melissa. I come from a Latin country where ladies comes first. And so I'll start with Melissa, asking Melissa, first of all, what, what does this sustainability and profitability and the combination of these concepts mean to you? Okay, well, I think um, at a high level, you can't, have sustainability unless you have sufficient profitability, right? So one begets the other. If you don't, um, at the end of the day, I think it's important to point out that any of these initiatives, um, we are operating in a wine business. And so, you know, looking at all of the decisions that we make, they have to 
be in line with intelligent, sustainable business decisions. And so I think the ability to achieve profitability is at the heart of the matter. Um, I think also though, that in, in the sustainability context, I think that at least from my perspective with my business, I've looked at it from a slightly different lens. Um, I think, um, well, I guess, again, backing up, it's important to be able to distinguish between short-term goals and long-term goals. And I think that for my business and with my vision for a more sustainable industry, the goals have definitely been more long-term. However, you have to be able to uh, sustain yourself in the short term with sufficient profit. So I think it's always a balance between the inherent costs associated with sustainable practices and also initiating change, right? Because I think uh, a big part of the conversation for me is uh, the ability to allocate resources towards marketing and education, because despite all of the things that we're actually doing practically, you also need resources in order to be able to educate sufficiently, because if not, then the end consumer doesn't, or even, you know, we're B2B as an importer, you know, our end consumers don't really understand why they need to pay more or why they should be making these decisions. So um, it's kind of a roundabout way of saying that you absolutely need it and you need to keep your eye on that prize. However, I think the lens is, is maybe a little less linear than in other business contexts. Thank you. You touch on really two important points. One is to educate. So you work B2B, and I think here we'll have different perspectives, especially from, from Dom. And another thing, I'll touch on that later, it's on short-term short goals and long-term goals, but we'll get there. Dom, what is your view on sustainability and profitability? Actually, this question came from you as we were having our warm-up call yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Um... So, I mean, like Melissa's just said, you know, every business has got to make money. Um, um, when we talk about sustainability, as, as people know, we're talking about people, we're talking about the world we live in, and we're talking about, you know, financial sustainability for the long term. Um, I mean, I think I'm fortunate that I work for um, an organisation that's 150 years old next year, actually and uh, plans to still be here in another 150 years. Um, it's, a, it's a member owned um, society. When I say society, we're actually a retailer. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, a cooperative. So, so when, if, you're, if you work for the Wine Society in, a, in a, a senior role, you're sort of a caretaker of it um, for, for a period of time however long that might be um, and so you need to kind of do what you what you every, all the decisions that we're making are are really for the long term uh, and I think when you think about profitability um, it's going to be different for every business uh, and and you have to kind of look at this in a quite nuanced way um, so for us some decisions that we are making are not good financial decisions when it comes to sustainability necessarily. They're not going to lead to hard cash, but they're, they're setting ourselves up for the, for the future. But whereas there are other things that we're doing where actually they, they are going to lead to um, 
to, to, to savings, which we can then pass on to our customers. So, you know, solar panels is the obvious one. You know, that's going to save us half a million pounds a year um, in a few years. Um, working on packaging is going to avoid um, a lot of money for us in the future on packaging compliance fees. Um, the UK is bringing in legislation that's going to really increase the cost of packaging in this country. But it, the legislation is designed in a way that if you reduce weight and you increase recyclability and recycled content, you pay less. So it's a no brainer. Um, so we're working hard on that. Waste, we pay less to have somebody remove our recyclable waste than our general waste. That's a no brainer. We're also, you know, on climate, we're expecting in the UK um, and I'm sure in other countries, a lot more legislation around carbon in the future. So working on our carbon emissions now might require some upfront investment, but actually it's going to save us down the line when legislation comes in and it becomes more costly to do these things. So, and then we also think about, you know, our, our customers as well and, and what they want from us. Um, and if we want them to spend their wine wallet with us, well, we know that over the next sort of five, 10 years, sustainability is going to become even more important to customers. So working on that now and setting ourselves up for that, you know, we're more, uh, we're more likely to meet their expectations. So I think I've, it's a long-winded answer to say that you know, there's no there's no one sort of not everything in sustainability is going to lead to a financial benefit. But done properly, I think when you look at it over time, um, it, it should. So it's more of a, a long term decision and it has business sense because you're going towards what your cust customer is asking you for or will be asking you for. And in the long run, it will save you money because you're sort of you're anticipating that legislation that is will become will be coming soon, which will be costing would be costing much more if you were to take those decisions later. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, packaging is a classic example of that. Um, you know, it, it, it's happening um, in the EU. Um, it's happening in the UK where where I mean, in the UK, it's called compliance fees. It will be called something different somewhere else. But basically, it's the cost of recycling packaging it is going up enormously. Um, and actually, so working on reducing glass bottle weights, moving into alternative packaging formats like bag in box, for example, um, and ensuring that everything that you put on the market as a business has got the most amount of recycled content, the That's least fine. amount of weight, you're saving hard cash and compliance fees. I mean, for us, it's going to be, you know, a, a three, 400,000 pound saving um, a year with this new legislation coming in in the next couple of years. All right, I know- And it has a huge environmental benefit, of course. Yeah, without a doubt. And I know I know, packaging is a, is a topic that Melissa absolutely loves and we'll definitely get there. 
But let me go to Stephen just to wrap up in regards to sustainability and profitability, and we'll go back to packaging for sure. Stephen, sustainability and profitability, what does this mean to you? Well, you know, I think that, you know, uh, there is that thing of short term and long term, right? And one of the things I, I, I like to, I'm thinking about today as, you know, how could reframe what we're talking about? What we're talking about is regenerative importing, regenerative distributing. We talk, you know, uh, there's a, in, the, in the world of agriculture today, everyone's talking about regenerative agriculture, farms, winery is becoming carbon positive taking carbon out of the out of the air and putting it back in their fields. And you know, if we think about carbon neutrality and we all have to get there, right? So it's important for our community to 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 do that. And there's, you know, and, there, and there's many different ways to, to do that. But the the thing that's going to drive that, our ability to do that, is actually the profitability that we make. We have to make money. And I I, I you know I remember many years ago when I I hired a financial, um, help, somebody to help me financially, a retired bank manager. And what he told me was that, you know, Stephen, profitability allows you to live your dreams, right? So if we want to have a uh, carbon neutral future, then we have to create a system that allows people to make profit throughout that system. And, you know, in, in different, we make different choices. One of the choices that I made, uh, which was a long-term choice, was to invest in my, in my uh, staff and uh, make sure that uh, they were the most highly educated, the highest trained, the best paid uh, people in our community. I didn't mind paying high wages knowing that, um, that with uh, treating my, my, supplier, my suppliers, my employees with uh, the, the way they wanted to be treated, I would be rewarded with sustainable employees. And I think, uh, Dom, you would agree with me that uh, training employees is very expensive. And if you can uh, get employees to work with you for uh, years and years and decades, I had people work me, for me with for decades, then you, you avoid a lot of those short-term costs and you actually make, you build a more sustainable future by building your team in a sustainable manner and treating them the way you would like to be treated as an employee. So that was one of my things of sustainability was really to build a great uh, group of employees and work together as a team and when, when you are uh, in a situation where you're being sustainable, and I, I took my company carbon neutral in 2005, and I, I'm, I think I was the only carbon neutral wine company in Canada, probably still the only carbon neutral wine company in Canada. But that benefit for my employees standpoint was they liked working for a company that was focused on environment. And then you also had the benefit of having uh, customers who appreciated your stance, right? So, you know, these kinds of investments you make, even though they are costly, have, you know, they do take money, uh, they also pay you back. Uh, so, you know, when it, when it comes to sustainability, profit, absolutely, we need to make profit, but we also need to build a culture uh, around our um, our teams and around our, our customers so that we're all part of one thing, a big circle, and that everybody's sustainable. And we're trying to make our suppliers sustainable, trying to make our customers sustainable, our employees sustainable. So we're all in it together. I think that's the thing that, that's going to work the best for us. What you just said makes complete sense. So what you did with your business, uh, Stephen, you looked at sustainability in a holistic way. You looked at all the business and you thought that you wanted to make 
people happy, just like you treated them as they would like to be treated and as you like to be treated at the end of the day. And that's a very simple lesson when it comes to, to social impact, isn't it? It's to treat people well. And so you looked at it overall. Melissa, does this resonate to you as you, I know that you work, you, from what I was reading and I know from what we know of you, you work very closely with your suppliers. So what do you look in them in regards to their social impact? Sure. So I think, um, you know, similar to Stephen, I've definitely taken a, a holistic approach to uh, inclusivity and really um, attributes that for me will lead to a, a long-term sustainable relationship, um, you know, professional and otherwise, because we know that any type of business relationship, there's always um, a lot of overlap, even, even personally. So with respect to my suppliers, it's always been, um, and it, it doesn't always work out, you know, you used to have to learn sometimes through trial and error, but the intention is to work with partners that um, are aligned with your value system, um, you know, at the heart of it. And so obviously this relates to sustainability practices in their vines, in their wineries, but also how, how they deal with their social relationships, how they handle their relationships with their colleagues, um, you know, just all, all around. Um, I think you can't just um, look at any of this in a vacuum. It is important to approach it from a holistic standpoint. And that's something that we've always done. Um, we are called communal brands um, because at the heart of what we do has always been approaching things from a collaborative standpoint. Uh, we all need each other. I view every single business relationship that I have, suppliers, customers, employees, otherwise as partnerships. And that to me is something that can sustain itself. And as we know in business, sometimes you make decisions where you think you're aligned and sometimes you don't. But what's interesting in, in our 14th year, I feel like we really now are at a point where we're, um, we understand uh, we have great relationships and I think our uh, selection process will be better going forward uh, always because of the experience that we have behind us. So it's been really, really interesting. And um, you always have to be grateful for your partners. I mean, that's fundamental. That sounds great, Melissa. And we'll touch on that point again of the sele selection process to understand how can you sort of how can they prove, so to speak, that are, they are actually the, the right partner. Dom, what about uh, social impact? And that's your title uh, in yeah. terms of the, the work. Yeah, 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 part of it. Um, well, well, I suppose social impact uh, for us um, is, is probably three areas. So it's, um, it's what and this is just for us and it'll be different for, for everybody. Um, it's our community around where we're based. We're based in a town called Stevenage um, in the UK. So we have a, um, what we're calling kind of a community investment program. Um, so we, um, you know, we support local charities and we're about to launch a uh, a program where we're taking local people who need a bit of a helping hand um, into a into a training program, um, and then and then bringing some people into the business to, for work experience, trying to get kind of people who maybe never thought about getting into retail or into operations or into the wine sector, giving them a chance kind of to get into the business. Um, 
through work experience and some training programs. So, so that's the kind of work with our local community. We then got our people. So that's our colleagues. Um, and so for us, that's doing, uh, you know, a lot of what, what Stephen was just talking about. It's, you know, it's health and well-being. It's equity, diversity and inclusion. It's, it's kind of training people and helping them to develop um, uh, and, and sort of um, helping them sort of be having, having a good culture, uh, a good culture of work. So people want to come to work every day uh, and enjoy coming to work every day. Um, and then there's the kind of the social impact through our supply chain. Um, so that's um, how do we how do we try to um, ensure that people in our supply chain are being taken care of properly? So that's workers in the vineyard, um, lorry drivers bringing stuff uh, across, um, whoever it might be. Um, and that's difficult. You know, we we have 800 or so suppliers. Um, so it, it requires a, um, a, a quite in-depth um, supply chain due diligence program. And it requires um, working very closely with, with our wine suppliers, um, a lot of whom we have worked with for many, many years. Um, but but actually, we have to formalise some of that relationship a little bit now, and 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 start to um, kind of really ask ask some uncomfortable questions that we've perhaps not asked before. Um, I think I was surprised coming into uh, you talked at the beginning, Marta, about how I'd, I worked in other sectors before I came into wine, and, and I'm fairly new to wine. Um, I was quite surprised how little conversation I found um, in the wine sector about human rights in the supply chain, um, whereas I found a lot of conversation about that in other sectors. Um, and so I think that's just a, an area where there needs to be more sort of conversation and work, I think. So, yeah, so that, that's where we see kind of social impact across those three areas. Dom, why is that? Why do you think that we don't have that conversation very much? I, I don't know. I'm still trying to work that out. Um, I um, I don't know. Maybe it's because people, you know, people. Wine is agriculture. Um, we're growing grapes. There are unskilled people working in our supply chains. We know, and there are risks of human rights abuses, um, exploitation, things like that. It will vary from country to country, um, and and from from business to business, of course it does, but we we know it's there. Um, it's there in all agricultural supply chains. But um, I don't know, there just seems to have been less conversation about it in wine. And, and maybe it's because people think, well, it's wine, so it doesn't happen in wine. Um, I don't know, but um, I think it's something that we need to talk more about. Melissa, do you, do you have that perception that this is not a topic that is so much disgusting wine? I do. And I think, I mean, I think it's consistent with um, a lot of our industry in the sense that I'm just going to go out there and say that we do, our industry is, for lack of a better word, very old school. Um, and so with a lot of the tradition that it's mired in, I think that you also take with that a lot of 
very uh, dated mindsets. And um, it, it really comes down to people in our industry taking the forefront and initiating these conversations, because I think it really um, these conversations in any industry aren't being initiated by everyone, right? So um, I guess that would be how I would put it. I think it's just a matter of um, initiating a change in mindset uh, from something that is older and more traditional and rooted in, in, a, in, a, in a different way of, of looking at things to a, a fresher, more inclusive perspective. All right. Thank you for that. Stephen, would you like to add that on some... Any point on this matter, or should we go on to to more of the profitability side of the of the business? <laughs> the thing about what we're we're talking about, it, I, I had the great fortune of, of visiting um, Tablas Creek a few weeks ago and, and talking to uh, um, Jason Haas about why he became regenerative farming more than biodynamic or organic. And his point was is that you know um, because he wanted to be part of all the solutions. And that was part of making sure that uh, they looked after their employees, right? Because that's not part of, of being an organic winery to look after your employees. Uh, you know, he wanted to look after his animals. Uh, he wanted to be seen that they were treated in a, in, a, in a humane way, you know, and that's not part of biodynamics. So, you know, you have to, again, going back to that full circle and being fully inclusive, I think that uh, it's great to see, and it's wonderful to see the amount of uh, sustainable wine organizations that are out there in, in the world today, uh, New Zealand and uh, Chile and California and many other places, we're, we're making great strides and that's the, that's the good news. But we have to take more than just the health of the land into consideration. We have to take into consideration the health of the whole ecosystem, which has to include the workers, the people who are part of it as well. Mm -hmm. Right, thank you about that. Yeah. So let's go into your all wine importers. You have embraced sustainability. So what do you think is different in your business rather to to others that haven't? What is it that you do that is different in the way that you address your suppliers, for example, in your purchasing decisions, different from others, Melissa? What is it that you do sustainably that you think that might other businesses might not? So I think that's a great question. Um, and again, it's only what I think because I can't really know what's driving other, other companies' business decisions. But one of the things that I've noticed um, in my industry, you know, working in a highly competitive market like New York um, and, and, and making an effort to be aware of my peers and be aware of, you know, the quote unquote competition um, I think that there's what I've noticed is uh, a real approach in distribution towards trying to have something for everyone. Um, and in doing so, you wind up with very large portfolios, um, which, of course, I'm not um, saying that this is wrong. It, it, it's just for, for me and where I differ from a sustainability standpoint is that I have found it very difficult to expand beyond a certain point with respect to the number of suppliers that I work with or the number of wines that I work with, because I'm not sure that that would be sustainable for my business. Um, I think that there's uh, an inherent, um, I guess, um, benefit to being at a scale for us that's allowed us to um, be more nimble, be more innovative, um, 
be able to really dig deep with the suppliers that we're working with rather than, you know, so depth rather than breadth. I think even looking at it from a relational standpoint, working, doing more with less is beneficial to our suppliers and the sustainability of their businesses. So I do think that this is probably a difference from my peers because there is really, um, you know, more of a trend towards breath and being able to show up with your customers, having pretty much anything they need at any given time. And, and, you know, in contrast, going, going, going more deeply, I do give something up by not having something for everyone, but I think people know what they're going to get from me and I can really stand behind that. And I think for my business in the long term, um, it's more sustainable. And essentially I'm, I guess, sacrificing scale, a, a larger scale for, you know, the quality of um, the work experience for me and everyone that we're working with, if that makes sense. Thank you. Stephen, when you launched uh, Campbell Kind Wines, which is a beautiful name, you were looking for, uh, you were looking for producers with a carbon neutral approach. What was this that you're looking for? What what was what was this? What did you look? And I, I'd like you to share uh, again from a sustainability and profitability uh, standpoint. What was the first thing that you were looking for in the producers that you work with? Even with Leaford, actually, even with your previous company. So, I wanted to create a carbon neutral wine because you know we. I find it funny, I really do, that every all the scientists are telling us we have to reduce our carbon footprint, and yet there's so few carbon neutral products of any kind out there. So I, I'm going to create a carbon neutral wine. And so I have been working, um, you know, it's, I have to explain a little bit, it's quite different in Canada than it is in America. Uh, and uh, in one of the things that's big difference, uh, so I'm sure you'd, you'd appreciate this, is that uh, as a wine importer, I, I never have any inventory. I have, all my inventory is controlled by the government. It's in a government warehouse. I cannot uh, order wine directly from a winery. I have to go through the government. The order on my behalf, it comes into their warehouse. I never own it, right? So I have no inventory costs, which is pretty amazing if you're an American distributor and have to pay for all your inventory or a DOM the same way. I never had any income toss. So I had no barriers to expanding my portfolio. And I wanted to create a portfolio uh, that would meet the needs of any restaurant or any hotel or any resort in Ontario. And I would be able to write their entire wine list for them, right? And that is, if you think about it, very efficient when it comes to uh, things like delivery and stuff. Uh, it, it is a very eco-friendly uh, way of trying to uh, supply wine to restaurants. Um, but um, you know, so when I when I looked at creating a carbon neutral wine, uh, the thing that obviously was to me was the things that uh, had the most carbon footprint were from the farthest away. So I looked at countries like uh, South Africa, New Zealand, uh, and Australia, and I thought about the people I was working there with and who I'd like to work with on uh, carbon neutrality, uh, making a carbon neutral product. And what I did uh, is was approach uh, different families because that's I represented families, not really too many companies, but I represented families. And I asked different people in different places, people I respected a lot, 
uh, to help me create these brands. So I was very, very fortunate to work with uh, Steve Smith in New, Z in New Zealand, uh, uh, Bruce Jack in Australia, Telmo Rodriguez in Spain, really famous. Bruce uh, Jack in South Africa. <laughs> yeah, uh, just, you know, really um, some of the most brilliant people I knew uh, helped me with this project. And of course, those are the people I went to first, people I knew that could produce really delicious wine, right? First and foremost, it's got to be good. Uh, and the other thing was that when it comes to profitability and creating this brand, uh, I was really um, knew that I had something that was going to take a lot of promotion and a lot of, uh, of um, you know, getting behind and spending money to, uh, to bring, it into, uh, bring it into the market. So I worked very closely with all these people and said, this is what I could afford to pay. <laughs> and, this, and what I could afford to pay, and, and I, what I found was that um, they, wineries, and I'm sure other wineries would feel the same way, they wanted to be part of the solution. So they worked with me to get it, reach me to price points uh, that uh, uh, were, um, uh, which allowed me to make very good profit margins here in my market. And so I could afford when it came in there to sample, sample, sample and work, work, work and be out in the market with it. So, you know, it was one of the important aspects of the project was to make sure that when the product got into the market, uh, that it was, um, that it was affordable. Because, you know, one of the things that's really hard out there for consumers, especially today, is that uh, inflation, the uh, price of things is going up and people are concerned uh, and money is, is always the thing that's scarce for consumers, right? And when we're living with consumers today in Canada, I'm sure it's the same everywhere else, something like 35% of our, our one in three consumers say if they missed one paycheck, they would be in financial peril. They wouldn't be able to pay their, their car payments or their mortgage. Uh, so, you know, consumers live on the edge, you got to provide them with um, with things that they perceive to be of good value, and of course, that does mean because some consumers think that good value in wine is a ten dollar Chianti, and some people think it's a hundred dollar Burgundy. So it does mean different things to different people. But uh, you know, I chose people uh, based upon um, uh, really having admiring them what they're doing in, in their own places and. Uh, and then worked hard to make them uh, profitable at a, at a price point, and then really worked hard on the packaging, because these are the things that draw drive consumers. It's not, um, you know, if we ask consumers why they buy wine, well, the first thing you're going to say is, "Well, I'm thirsty," uh, you know, and, and why do they buy wine? And in 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 the top five things that people consumers buy wine for, nothing, not one of them is is because it's eco uh, friendly. Right, it's eco-friendly comes last. So when we're selling wine, when you're selling an eco-friendly product, the first thing we have to do is sell all the other attributes that the consumers are looking for first. And the first thing is better be good. It better taste good. It better be well-priced. Better be in good packaging. And if you can have a great story, like a family story, like someone like Bruce Jack, if you know the Bruce Jack story, he's an amazing, uh, uh, winemaker was Constellation's worldwide winemaker, traveled all over the world helping people make better wine. Uh, and he made one of my wines for me. So, you know, have that complete package. So that's that's really important. And then you can make it eco-friendly and then it's going to sell. But all the other things have to be looked after first. So first, does this resonate to you, Dom? 
Uh, yeah, it does. It does. I mean, for us, the the quality of the wine is absolute priority, um, and that's what you know. That's what the wine society is pr pr prided itself on for for many many years. It, it's quality and and keeping prices fair. Um, I say low, so it's a low sale price, but it's a fair price. We buy it at a fair price, if that makes sense. Um, it's not about driving. It's not about driving um, our our suppliers down um, unfairly. Um, and then you know, and then and then sustainability, you know, comes. But but I think I think increasingly people are asking are looking for um, markers around sustainability. I think our members are increasingly asking us about it. Um, I don't think yet it's it's at the same level as price and quality, um, but I think it's it's edging up. But you you say consumers are at the edge, but so are companies. One of the from our experience, what we see is that many companies, many farmers you work with, because wine producers or grape growers are farmers at at core, is that they're thinking of surviving the next day. And nowadays they're facing extreme scarcity in terms of resources, extreme uh, increase in prices from glass, from a, a variety of other materials. So they're thinking of surviving the next day. And here we are, wine importers, wine trade, and customers asking them to become more sustainable. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how, how do you have this conversation with your suppliers? How, and we'll go to your carbon report because I'm looking forward to that. And I'm sure I'll start with you, Dom. I'm sure you had to talk with many of your suppliers as you went through uh, calculating your carbon uh, emissions. So I'll start with you. How did you have this conversation with suppliers? I'm sure you heard this many times. So before we talk about consumers, I want to talk about uh, suppliers and their struggles and this conversation of being more sustainable uh, with them because it will affect them for sure. Your choices affect your suppliers and will require will require them to change their supply chain ultimately yeah so, and we're we're really really mindful of that um so we're you know we're very much taking a kind of an, an enable approach with working working with our suppliers um so we we are, we are asking more um or we've started asking more um around you know around the, the the human rights aspect around um um lighter bottles and things like that but we i think where what we're making sure that we are asking for changes over a reasonable amount of time where we're making sure that we understand that suppliers are at different stages on this yeah. journey some like the Jason Haas's of the world are, um, are are far ahead. Others are, you know, just starting out. Um, everybody has different economic situation. Smaller producers may be able to, um, you know, do do less um, less quickly, as it were. Um, and and so 
so we need to take all of that into account. We need to give people time and we need to, to help our suppliers. So how can we help them? Well, we don't have all the, all the answers yet, but we know we can do things like um, setting, you know, we've talked to our 800 suppliers. They're very keen on having um, much more communication between them um, about how to tackle some of the things that we're, we're now asking around packaging, around um human rights, whatever it might be. Um, we are going to be launching next year a supplier fund that suppliers can access to help them to, to get sustainability certifications. And we're going to you know, invest in, a, in sort of carbon removal programs within our own supply chain. So that will be around regenerative farming practices, um, increasing biodiversity. So again, we're not quite sure the mechanics of how we're going to deliver that, but it may well be a fund that suppliers can access. So I think I think what we're what we're trying to do is give our suppliers a, a clear understanding of the direction of travel, make sure that we, they they understand that we recognise that people are going to have to go at different paces, and that some people are going to want some help and support. And so how can we provide that either through education, learning, information sharing um, or actual financial help um, to get started? So it's going to be a combination of all of those things. Melissa, what's your take on this? How do you have this conversation? You work with smaller producers. How do they how do they get this conversation? So I think, well, I mean, I think we're maybe approaching it a little bit differently in the sense that um, we have criteria in mind as we're selecting our partners. And so um, when you're looking at ensuring that, you know, sustainability practices are aligned um, with our value system for our producer selection, from the outset, we have had an eye towards that. So it's and it's a much smaller group of let's say 50 as opposed to like 800 um so it's been a little bit easier as we've uh maybe suggested shifts or changes or suggestions um the scale is so much smaller that it's been a little bit easier and also since we were starting from a place of um you know this is how we would like it be to be in order for us to be partners from the outset the changes have been less radical I will say though that the, the biggest change that we've had to address with our, our suppliers has been the packaging piece. Um, and um, you know, as you know, Marta, I've been on a crusade for a while now about this. Um, and I the biggest shift has been asking producers that have never produced a wine outside of single-use glass before to uh put their wine in a bag and box, um, which was definitely a big shift, but honestly. So awesome how open to it they were. And, um, you know, as winemakers for generations doing something in a particular way and, you know, obviously not be needing to get a whole lot of guidance at this point, being totally open to um, any sort of guidance or um, assistance with respect to uh, packaging in this new format, which is a, an entirely different um, animal than, than, than glass. Um, and then even a step further now, 
uh, behaviors that are moving more towards a circular economy and the and the initiatives that we're taking. It's been so incredible. Like I get these chills because everyone's been very, very open and supportive and wanting to go on this, let's call it an adventure. <laughs> so um, that's been really cool. But it's been, I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's, that is a big shift. Um, so fortunately, I've been lucky that I, I suppose starting with, um, you know, somewhat, you know, values that are, were somewhat aligned, um, it hasn't been as radical, but it's a lot of work, you know, and a lot of trial and error. And, you know, we've been riding, riding the wave together. Tell us a little bit more about that, Melissa, because I know, uh, for example, Dom was saying that one of the things they'll go into is exactly, and, and you just launched your bagging boxes, right, uh, Dom? Your own wine bagging boxes, for example. Tell us about mm -hmm. that path. How did you convince your producers to go into uh, other containers rather than glass bottles? Uh, yeah, so we're, um, so we're putting six of our own label wines into bag and box um so they'll be they'll be launching next month actually they're being they're literally being put in the boxes probably as we speak um and then they'll be on the shelves in a couple of weeks um so the uh, it wasn't really too difficult with bag and box, um, actually. Um, they they were really up for it. Um, there's some nervousness about quality, um, but that's understandable. Um, we, and we and we don't think there will be quality issues. But we we we're we're talking about it as a trial because not not a trial from the sustainability point of view, but a trial just we want to make sure that it stacks up quality wise. Um, they're supposed to stay fresh for six weeks and we want to test that they do stay fresh for, for six weeks um, or at least at least for a good portion of that. Um, where, where, we've, where we've found it more difficult is um, trialing, uh, trying to bring to market um, 75 centiliter alternative packaging formats. Um, so we, we commissioned a study about nine months ago, looking at to identify, um, of all the commercially available, um, alternative packaging formats out there, which are, which, which ones sort of stack up well environmentally, none of them are perfect. The bag and box isn't perfect. It's a lot less carbon, but actually the inner bag can't be recycled in the UK because we have terrible recycling infrastructure. So um, that has to be sent to a specialist recycler. Um, so there, there's, there's none of them is a, a perfect solution. But the other two that came out um, top were the plastic 100% recycled um, flat bottle. Um, and then the um, what's called the paper bottle, but it isn't really a paper bottle. It's basically a bag in bottle. Um, <laughs> that's but it's a, a 75 centiliter version again both have their issues you know plastic's been demonized in the UK as it has in many countries so a lot of people don't want to drink out of a flat plastic bottle but um, but um, the LCAs kind of uh, lead us toward um, the LCAs suggest that they're you know about a third of the carbon of a, of a glass bottle um depending on which one you 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 believe um and then the 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 paper bottles um also you know somewhere similar yeah. 
Yeah, so so you know, these are all part of us reducing our carbon footprint and trialing things, but actually there are some really, really tough logistical problems. Um, issues around bringing those to market you know the flat plastic bottles for example fall over on the bottling lines um, and so you need new you know specialized parts for it the paper bottle also slightly different size so requires specific parts so that one's harder but we're working on it um, so it's a learning process to because you need to change your own supply chain and your own value chain to implement those well we just need to change yeah how it works so so we have to bring we have to bring it in bulk into the uk and find somebody in the uk who's prepared to bottle that format and there aren't many in the uk that are prepared to bottle that format because they just don't have the right kit and also we're not talking about huge quantities here either yeah. so you know it's quite a big investment for bottling lines to invest in these change parts to the if if they're not going to get more customers than just us that makes sense yeah so, so let me show you i'll go to melissa but i just want to share with you uh something that we received recently uh, it's an it's a study conducted by the institute for grocers, for groceries in the UK. I might be saying the source and I'll correct it in a second. But it shows just to have an idea. And though this is for the UK, chances are this is representative of the whole world. How in a supermarket, what's the share of packaging represented by the beer, wine and spirits um, industry? And that is 20%. So if you look at the share of packaging, packaging has a huge environmental weight on everything that we see in a supermarket. So whether we like it or not, we cannot never speak about this issue without talking about the topic of packaging. Melissa, you were talking about how the path of uh, convincing your producers to go into uh, alternative packaging. And it's also important here because we are not to miss the point of profitability that one of the issues or one of the, the arguments we had against alternative packaging is that producers would lose margin if they were to go into, besides all the other arguments that we know of, that uh, it's not perceived as a good wine by consumers, et cetera, that they would lose margin if they were to go into alternative packaging. So tell us about your path as a wine importer in convincing, convincing other producers to go into alternative well, packaging. So I'll say, I think that takes, that's a, that's a quick one. Um, so I, it's a request that I made. Um, and when I made that request, no one ever said no to me. Um, we are not asking our producers to cut back any of their margin. Um, we are always looking to produce a wine uh, in, in a style, but also in a price point that we feel the market can bear for whatever it is that we're selling. Um, so, you know, there was intention behind, okay, so if we can't work with, you know, this particular Pinot Noir or whatever, then, you know, we have to choose a different site, you know, so there were strategic decisions that we made in order to have um, the wine be something that they could sell in a, in a sustainable way. So that's yeah. from the outset. And the yes, the yes piece was, was 
um, pretty immediate. And it was a lot of work, honestly, on our part in order to, um, you know, ensure that all the logistic logistical pieces were in place and to uh, facilitate the process. We never just left the producer on their own, like, just go do it. You know, we were very, very hands-on, which I think was also attractive to them. Where I've seen much more of a challenge, like getting the producers to yes, not that difficult. Getting my customers to yes, a lot more difficult. And that therein lies the challenge. And this is my work because I feel like, you know, that uh, uh, historical $20 uh, for a three liter box ceiling from a price point perspective is the universe that we live in. And I feel like it's my job to educate and advocate towards the fact that actually high quality wine in the 30, 40, $50 for a three liter equivalent um, you know, price point is absolutely an achievable thing. And there's really no reason other than, you know, historical stigma that prevents a broader acceptance for that. So my work really is more so at my customer level. I sell to distributors in other markets and to uh, restaurants and retailers in, um, in New York uh, and in California. And, you know, I am constantly saying, just like, just give it a try. It'll sell. Now, it's more than that because I think you can't just drop something on someone, right? It's been years of understanding what the market can bear. And I've been integrally involved in that as well. I get out there, I visit markets, I talk to people, and we are getting to a point now uh, to some of the points earlier about, you know, uh, the market, uh, I guess, pull for things that are more environmentally responsible. I'm seeing that more and more and more. I'm seeing that um, absolutely, I'm going to say it with a younger consumer base, they care a lot. Um, you know, the rest of the consumer base will say that they care, but not necessarily willing to act on it um, as readily. And so there is uh, a thirst for it, if you will, and actually working with my customers and working together on how best to market and position this message so that when people come into their store or look at their list, that they understand that eco-consciousness goes beyond just the farming and that it includes all these other things and taking them along on the journey. I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a shift, but it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a journey, if you will. Do you, all of you, do you think it's already reflected in your sales? This, this consumers wanting sustainable uh, wines in this case? Yes. I mean, I see, I see, um, I, I produced my first $40 box wine in, um, in 2016. And I can tell you that the, um, the market is not where I would like it to be in terms of broad acceptance, but it has grown. I have watched it grow. I've watched, you know, the category grow. So I, we are, we're, we're on our way for sure for me. Okay. And so I let think, me ask um, you. Go on, go on. Ask me that question in a year, and I will have a better <laughs> yeah. answer. I think um, so, we get we get asked a lot about you know wines that are considered to be more sustainable, and we get asked a lot of questions by our, our members. But um, we haven't yet done a good enough job of easily signposting wines that are more sustainable, and explaining why they are more sustainable. Um, and that's the work that we need to do, and we are doing over the next year or so, which is why I hope I will have a better answer then. That's what I'm, I'm sure it's questions. there, and I'm sure they'll yeah. go for it, but uh, I can't categorically 
So here's the question for you. And it's one of the questions that came out of the, the registrations. How do you make sustainable wine products attractive to the consumer, Stephen? How do you make them attractive? How do you sell a sustainable wine? Because if you don't sell good wine, if you have a wine company, and we've seen that, just focusing on sustainability, something's wrong. Because shouldn't we, you be speaking about the wine? How do you, how do you build the package for the consumer? It's remembering what the needs of the consumers are, you know, and that's, I, I spent 40 years trying to figure out what the needs of consumers are. And it's a very complex thing and everybody's, every individual is unique, but the things that we know that are important to consumers are, are, are things like, first of all, does, does it taste great? And for every consumer, that product can be completely different, right? So if you look at the coffee industry, some of us like coffee with double cream, double sugar, and some like it at espresso. Right, so consumers and what they like are from you know sweet and sticky and uh, and creamy to bitter, bitter, bitter. So everybody's all over the place. So you can't. That's pretty hard to define what a consumer likes. But then you know we do know that price is going to be really important. We know that packaging is really important. People, why do people pick up a bottle of wine in a store? if it's not attractive to look at, right? What piques their interest to pick it up? And if they pick it up, most likely they might purchase it, right? And then, you know, what's the, what's the story behind the wine? You know, who's, what area did it grow in? Uh, what, uh, whose family grew it? The things that make it, um, you know, some have a reputation are all things that are more important than for the consumer, right? Than uh, the eco packaging. And so when you, when you satisfy those things, then you can still, you can add on, oh, guess what? You've got a, a great tasting wine that's made by a great family in a, a traditional wine growing area. It's made in a sustainable way and it's carbon neutral. And then, you know, you have a winning package, right? It's, it's, it's answering all the questions, but most importantly, putting consumers prime, primary interest first. Sustainable, sustainability. Tom, a question for you that comes from the audience. Are there any sustainability impacts that have been realized from Brexit that could be seen in other areas as global relationships that are constantly, constantly changing? Or maybe impacts that you saw that resulting from leaving the European Union that you think see, that you didn't see coming? Um, I... I think with regards to sustainability, um, just trying to think. Um, I, I I mean, there's a there's a concern. I think that you know the the UK is about to basically, um, or it says it's about to sort of disregard all EU legislation and rewrite its own. Um, and and that you know that that covers everything from farming subsidies to to packaging legislation to you know how we what we think about human rights i think um so i think the political landscape is a little hasn't really settled down yet in the area of sustainability i think it's hard to know what it's going to look like um going forward um or whether we're just going to adopt the eu legislation and just stick Britain on it um, uh, or repackage it, you know, but actually it'll be quite similar to the EU anyway. So I don't really, 
I don't really know. I don't have a good answer to that question, I'm afraid. I, I personally haven't seen any, any major impacts in terms of sustainability yet, um, but, it's, but it's potential um, to come. Um, that, and if anything, I think it's that um, standards will be lower in Britain um, than the EU. Um, when it comes to things like supply chain due diligence, when it comes to things like packaging, um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of worried that uh, farming, I think, um, and the, the, the environmental legislation around, around farming. Um, yeah, I worry that, we, that our standards will lower compared to the EU, but um, I think it's a bit too early to tell. Okay, let me just ask you a final question. And then I'll have a, just a final question for all of you. You just currently did a, a carbon report. You didn't do a report. You calculated your carbon footprint and you've, based on, on that calculation, you, you complied, well, you committed to several reduction, reduction targets in the next 10 years, more or less, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. They were, they're variable commitments. We've shared the link for your carbon report here in the chat. And I invite you to visit it because if you're a wine importer, the work that Wine Society did was uh, very thorough and very bold. We can call it that. What was your biggest learning before, regardless of the commitments? What what was the the hardest lesson you took from this? Um, well, I, th I think it reinforced the fact that so we we've committed to. Um, so we've committed to to halving our scope three emissions um, by 2032. Um, and the reason we put, put that number and that date is because if we're going to get to net zero by 2040, which essentially at the moment requires about a 90% reduction in scope three emissions, we sort of need to be at about 50% by 2032 in order to hit that 2040 goal. Um, uh, and so once you set yourselves that, and then you go through the process of, of unearthing every part of your business and saying, where can we make emissions reductions? You realize how hard it is gonna be um, and where you need, you need to work on every single aspect of your business. Um, in order to achieve that 50% reduction. Um, there are some big wins, of course, things like glass bottles, reducing that, you know, glass is 31% of our, of our total emissions. So, you know, there are some big wins to be had there, but that doesn't get us to 50%. You have to work on everything and working on everything which we have published that in that report, all the things that we know today that we think we can do, it still only gets us to 34%, even if we do all of those things. Um, so where does the other 16% come from? Um, you know, it will come from passive decarbonisation, which is just the kind of general, you know, decarbonisation of the economy. There will be some, some gains to be made there, but we, we we need everybody else to be working on it. I think that's where that 16% comes in is it needs to come from, from everybody across the sector um, reducing their emissions. 
you said at the beginning, Marta, that um, climate change is not a commercial battleground. And I think that, you know, if we all want to get to that 50% reduction in scope three emissions, well, then we've all got to be working on it. Otherwise, none of us will get it. <laughs> We're not talking about Santa Claus, which some people still think we are sometimes, isn't it? Okay, so I want to finish with the word efficiency, because, uh, again, I believe that if sustainability brings efficiency as well, and therefore profitability, because you're managing your re resources in a much more mindful way. Uh, and that means that you're saving, you're not only saving future, but you're saving uh, saving uh, resources. So Stephen, do you think that when you ran your business in a holistic fashion, taking having sustainability in mind, did you, did you have a more efficient operation because of that? I truly believe that I did. <laughs> yes, I mean, that's, you know, the, the goal, of course, was to, to do that. And uh, um, yes, absolutely. Uh, the, um, you know, in so many ways, you know, because one of the things that I wanted to do was, uh, you know, was to provide one-stop shopping for my customers. So uh, in, in working with my community of suppliers, I worked with about 200 wineries from all over the world. Um, you know, that that community helped me to do that, that, that to become that one-stop shop. Uh, my work with my uh, with my, my team uh, in terms of building a team and, and creating a team and keeping them together uh, was something that I was very proud of because we had almost no turnover in my staff and I had people staying with me for the longest time and they became recognized as experts in their field. And then that helped me build the sustainable uh, relationship with my customers. Uh, so, you know, again, it, for me, uh, sustainability is a circle and it has to take in every part of your community uh, from uh, your suppliers, your customers, your employees. And, and you, if you build that in a, in, a, in a way that's respectful for each other, you're going to have something sustainable, something that uh, is profitable right? and something that's going to last into the future. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's bringing it all together. Thank you, Don. Your uh, carbon journey sorry, did Marta, you more efficient. I'm, sorry, you have my. I was responding to a question in the chat. Ah, okay, okay, sorry. Okay. Ask me the question again. Sorry. I asked you. Did you, well? Very simply, did your operation become more efficient uh, since you uh, embraced sustainability more holistically? Um. I mean, I think it will do. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there are some there. Are, I, I've talked about some of them already. There are some real um, big gains for us to be made um, in terms of financial efficiency in things like investing in solar panels. You know, we have five warehouses, all big warehouses. And we've just I literally did the calculation last week because um, we we're we're planning on putting solar panels on all of them. And actually that's gonna, in five years time, um, that'll save us about half a million pounds a year. Um, I think we can save a lot on, a lot of money on, uh, on packaging. Um, I think we can save um, a lot of money on um, moving. At the moment we, we publish and send out a lot of printed materials. I think there's a lot of money yeah. efficiencies to be, to be saved there. You know, our digital 
footprint is 0.1% um, of our total carbon emissions, whereas sending out published materials is 5% of our total carbon emissions. So there's a lot wow. of efficiencies to be gained by, by moving to, to digital, for example. And you know, one of the things that we're really keen on within uh, with our wine suppliers is is the the move towards farming more regeneratively. Um, and I think that you know, you know, if we can if we can crack that, um, in terms of helping, so there are some there are some again like the Jason Houses of the world who who now farm regeneratively and it works really really well for them. But for somebody who's um, farming conventionally to move to farming more regeneratively there are potentially drops in yield um, potentially you know financial impacts over the first few years before hopefully profitability comes back when when yield comes back resilience to climate change come back through lower input costs through less tractor passes through through all these other things but there's still that 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 yield gap um, so how how do we manage that? And I think and I think that there are some real efficiencies to be gained and profits to be gained for the for the growers. But but I think how do we how do we how do we enable more of our growers to farm regeneratively? How do we how do we address that gap? And I think I think there's something missing there. And and as actually this was the this was the response I was trying to write into the into the chat is we were asked about what role can applied research play um and i think that that's an area where where we could use more applied research is how can we how can we um help farmers to farm more regeneratively but not impact their profits in the short term but really also help them in the long term it's a million dollar question isn't it anyway yeah melissa to <laughs> Um, so I think um, it's yes and no um, to efficiencies, because going back to what I was saying in the beginning, there's a short term and a long term. And to uh, address your point, Tom, and uh, about that, you know, gap in yield that you refer to, I think that that's a good analogy for a lot of um, you know, bolder sustainable initiatives, there's always going to be a gap in yield um, that is primarily based on you know, the market um, pull or acceptance for some of these shifts, right? So whether it's packaging or, um, you know, price or, you know, any sort of change can sometimes yield disruption that, um, you know, is not always efficient in the short term, but in the long term will yield benefits. So I think um, I um, am making investments all the time in areas that are, um, their investments, and they may not necessarily prove a return. And uh, that could be viewed as terribly inefficient. But I think without some experimentation and innovation and um, bold steps to at least try in certain areas, then we can never get to where we're trying to get to, which would ultimately be more efficient. So I don't know if that answers your question, but um, it's yes and no. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we're finished. There were the, uh, many questions. Uh, there were a few questions and answered. Uh, we'll be here in a month's time touching on the topic that actually is the biggest challenge for wine producers, which is water. 
So we speak about packaging, we speak about carbon, but there's no conversation that we have that doesn't touch on water scarcity. So we'll be back in a month's time with a climate talk on um, on water in vineyards, on water smart, no, vineyard smart, um, God, I'm lost, I'm sorry about that. Uh, on water in, in vineyards for sure, water management. Thank you, Dom, Stephen, and Melissa for being here today. And we hope to see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for having us. Thank you. <laughs>